Blog Talk Radio. show everybody oh I'll let you boy y'all got a full show for you today jam-packed show for you today um was a little bit late setting up in the studio but nonetheless I'm here I am here I was able to make it somewhat on time you could say um okay so what are we going to talk about today well um, we have some eyebrow-raising stuff from the Biden administration on foreign policy. We're going to talk about that. We have a new poll that indicates a grace period for Joe. Interesting, a grace period for Joseph. So, you know, we'll see how long that lasts. I wouldn't bet on it hanging around too long based on his current trajectory. Um, we have Bernie Sanders who is saying now that the Democrats will use reconciliation to get through a package on, um, on COVID, which could include some checks. So we'll talk about that. Not sure. We're getting mixed messages overall, so I'm not sure what actually is going to happen on that front. Uh, so we'll discuss it. We have a New York Times editor was fired the other day for – well, nominally for a tweet that was sucking off Joe Biden during the inauguration, but there's a little bit of a debate as to whether or not that's actually true. We have, again, conflicting reports as to the reason why they were fired. So we'll talk about that. Um, and we have a lot more. Twitter is now dropping the hammer on left-wing accounts and suspending them, as predicted, as you were warned. Um, so, yeah, busy day. Let's go ahead and get started. And um, I want to do that by talking about Joe Biden's foreign policy. Um, yeah, let's, 
Let's jump right into it, y'all. Let's jump right into it. So we have some eyebrow-raising stuff from the Biden administration on foreign policy. This is from I-24 News. They say the following. A convoy of 40 trucks and armor vehicles said to have entered Syria from Iraq. A large U.S. military convoy entered northeastern Syria on Thursday, Syrian state news agency Sana reports, citing sources on the ground. According to the report, the convoy included some 40 trucks and armored vehicles and was backed from the air by helicopters. It entered Syria from Iraq via the Al-Walid crossing to bring arms and logistical equipment to the bases in, I don't know how to pronounce that, and Deir Azor provinces. Other local media report that such maneuvers are not unusual as the U.S. often moves transfers equipment between Iraq and Syria. Uh, So they continue and they say the following. At the same time, Sana also reports that some 200 U.S. troops arrived um, in another province on helicopters. According to the report, the troops are set to deploy on the nearby oil fields, Kurdish-controlled eastern Syria, rich in energy resources. Okay, so um, I think there's the crux of the story. Now, this is not in any way, shape, or form to absolve Trump and his administration because the fact of the matter is Trump admitted it on live TV. He came out there and said, we're going we're gonna to make sure that we get the oil. We need to grab the oil. We should have taken the oil in Iraq. What we're going to do is move some troops around and protect the oil in Syria. I mean, he said this. He, he said it a number of times. He used to say it all the time in regards to Iraq. Um, and then as president, there were reports that he was protecting the oil in Syria, which is more code word for we're going to jack the oil in Syria. Um, So Trump was doing that. Now, here we have a situation where I guess they pulled out for a while from certain regions. And then now, um, you know, Biden takes office and now they're going right back to those oil fields. If you ask me about the mechanics of it, I cannot tell you because you would need to be in the room and in the conversation and part of certain government agencies in order to know what's really going on here? Like, is it part of the, the mechanisms of government that were, like the wheels were already in motion and Biden comes in and that's part of what was already laid out to happen from the previous administration? Or is it that Biden came in and at some point within the first day or two, he got in contact with certain government agencies and was like, okay, now do the thing in Syria where you go back to the oil fields. I don't know. I don't know the mechanics of it. But bottom line is, we can all look at this and very clearly say, not a good idea. <laughs> I don't think this is a good idea. Um, now, apparently there was also an attack in Iraq where about 30 people were killed. It was a suicide bombing. The, you know, the, the speculation is that it was ISIS. If I'm not mistaken, it was in a Shia-majority region. Um, and so now there's whispers about like, hey, should we increase troop levels even more in Iraq? And by the way, people are giving Trump credit and they're wrong to do so. They're acting like he pulled out the troops. He didn't pull out the troops. You know, he still has left thousands of troops in the Middle East. So, you know, he yo-yoed them a little bit, like the levels went up, down, up, down, up, down. Well, that's exactly what Obama did. And ultimately when Obama left office, we still had troops in the Middle East. When Trump left office, we still had troops in the Middle East. But now the conversation is, hey, should maybe we take it from a few thousand to like 10 or 20,000? That's the conversation that's happening behind the scenes. Or to be fair, I don't know the exact number that they're considering taking it to. But, um, you know, there hasn't been a decision made yet on that front when it comes to Iraq. And a lot of the speculation 
um, was premature because they were saying, oh, Biden's already going to send troops back in there. Not necessarily the case. The, the ones that are there are still there and probably will stay there. But what will happen, we don't know yet. We don't know if he's going to increase troop levels or decrease troop levels or whatever the case, or keep it the same. We don't know yet. Um, but because there was a terror attack, it does sort of give Biden um, an opening if he wants to say, okay, I guess we got to increase troop levels to maintain security or whatever. He can make such an argument. But again, reserve judgment until you see what he actually does. We have to be fair. But in the case of Syria, yeah, this is, uh, this is probably not a good idea. This is probably not a good idea. And it's a shame because, you know, when you get Republican administrations, as a general rule, they believe in hard power, which means like, yeah, not only do we want to use air power and drones, but we want boots on the ground as well, and we want to ground invade a bunch of places. And oftentimes when you get Democrats in power, you get soft power, which is like, we're good with the, the fighter jets and the drones, but yeah, okay, I guess we don't want to do ground invasions that much. But either way, it's like different wings of the imperialist spectrum. <laughs> and everybody agrees that we need to be the policemen of the world and we need to go all over the world. And that's a shame, and that's terrible. Now, a lot of people, again, are wrongly giving Trump credit for, like, not starting a new war. That's such a – that's damning with faint praise to the max because the fact of the matter is when you look at his foreign policy record, it's overwhelmingly negative and overwhelmingly hawkish. 432% increase on drone strikes, and Obama was already doing way too many drone strikes. And that increase was only in like the first year, by the way. It probably went up even more in the subsequent years. So 432% increase in drone strikes, kept us in Iraq, kept us in Afghanistan, kept us in Syria as well, shuffled troops around from one place to another, but ultimately kept us in Syria, um, aided, the, aided and abetted the genocide in Yemen that Saudi Arabia was carrying out with our weapons. These are not things that you praise the guy for. You know, in fact, quite the opposite. He was terrible on foreign policy. He was incredibly hawkish on foreign policy. He listened to the neoconservative establishment on foreign policy. I mean, probably the worst example, ripping up the Iran deal and uh, assassinating a top commander, General Soleimani. You can't do that. I mean, that's, he damn near started World War III, and then people want to give him praise for being a dove. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So, yeah, no, it's the exact opposite. He deserves nothing but criticism. Now, with Biden, again, we're going to keep it real with you. Whatever he does, we will report it accordingly, and I'll tell you what, what I think of it. But in this case, whether it's the, the mechanisms of government and the wheels were already in motion that brought us here, or whether it's Biden who actively made the decision to bring us here with more troops in Syria because the oil is terrible and they need to stop it. So anyway, here you go, some of the first reports on foreign policy under the Biden administration. And lo and behold, it's bad. Okay, next. We're going to talk about the honeymoon period, y'all. We have a honeymoon period for one Joseph Biden. Okay, y'all, so, ooh, hold on. Let me... I always fuck this up because I got to get used to the way we do the show now, but I got to change my lights behind me. Signify that we're on a new story. Makes life easier on the back end. Anyway, so we have a new poll out from ABC and Ipsos, and this is on our new president, Joe Biden. Take a look at this. 
early indications show honeymoon period for Biden administration. President Joe Biden is held in high regard by most Americans in a new poll. So let me give you some specifics. Um, They asked about a lot of the executive orders that he did on day one. And um, the results are, you know, perhaps what you guys would expect them to be, but I don't think it would, it's, if you asked your average apolitical American, I don't think that they would get this. Because there's a lot of propaganda that has convinced people in this country that like, oh, we're a conservative country or we're a center-right country. When the fact of the matter is, we're pretty solidly left on the actual issues. So on the issue of reversing the travel ban that targeted some Muslim and African countries, 55% of the country agrees with that. On ending the construction of the southern border wall, which is another thing that Biden did. Apparently Trump, I didn't even know that Trump was really building the wall. I thought he was just bluffing, but apparently he was using some funds that were allocated for a different part of the government, and he reallocated them to build the wall. So we found a way to start building some portions of that border wall, but um, Biden basically called that off. And again, 55% of the country agrees with stopping building that wall. Um, The exclusion of non-citizens from the U.S. Census. That's another thing that Trump did, and Biden reversed it. 56% of the country agrees with Biden on that. An effort to dismantle DACA. So Trump administration was doing that. They're screwing the dreamers. And Biden reversed that. 65% of the country agrees with Biden on that. Getting back into the World Health Organization, of which Trump began the process of getting us out. 65% agree with Biden on that. Expanding non-discrimination protections to include our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. 83% of the country agrees with Biden on that. A mask mandate on federal property. 81% of the country agrees with Biden on that. Um, When it comes to COVID, probably one of the most important issues, if not the most important issue of the day. 69% of the country agrees with Biden's response response to COVID thus far. And um, on the issue of his ability to unify the country, 57% support him on that. Um, When it comes to how he's handling the transition, 67% of Americans support him on that. So in other words, listen, every issue they polled was majority support for Biden, which means it was against Trump. And here's an interesting fact. So 67%, like I just said, Um, approve of how Biden's handling the the transition. Trump was nearly 30 points lower on the exact same issue in 2016. Isn't that amazing? Nearly 30 points lower. So it's really interesting. Trump is an interesting case study because he is a president who polled uniquely poorly through his whole time in office. I don't think he ever cracked 50% approval rating. I don't think he ever did. Now, but funny enough, until just recently, when he sort of egged on the diet coup at the Capitol Hill, he also had a floor that was higher than other presidents. So he had, a, he had the most steady approval rating that sort of oscillated between 30% and 42%. Like he was always in that, right in that range, always around like the 40% number. And it was steadier than most, but it was also, he was more unpopular than most presidents. So Biden is sort of a return to what it would normally look like with a normal president in a normal time where, um, you know, at least in terms of his executive orders, all of its majority approval, and in terms of stuff like unifying the country and how he's handling the transition, his marks are a hell of a lot higher than, uh, than Trump's. 
And But now here's the thing, though, and this is why we're even having this conversation. What are you going to do about this? So if you have 57% of the country that's, that agrees with uh, your ability to unify the country, if you have 69% of the country that agrees with your response on COVID, if 67% approves of how you're handling the transition, how are you going to take, take the fact that you're popular and harness that towards positive ends? Because, again, the dirty little secret is you have a small honeymoon period and a small window of opportunity, and it's always right at the beginning when you get elected. And, you know, Biden can nominally use these high numbers and use it to force through a program that would actually help the American people. And if he were to do that, then all the Washington, D.C. bubble conventional wisdom stuff would be exposed as the fraud that it is. Because what would happen is you would have, like, the FDR effect, how FDR, when, when he actually did the New Deal, stepped up in many ways and helped the American people economically. Of course, he did horrible things, too, like Japanese internment. But putting that aside for a second, you talk about the economic stuff specifically. People see that, and they're like, they respond to that, and they're like, oh, okay, this guy's actually looking out for me, and I could prove it because my material well-being you know, has gone in the right direction. I'm much better off now than I was before, and people reward that. So now the conventional wisdom is sort of like I alluded to before. You get that honeymoon period, and then you go back down, and then it's a little bit of a seesaw effect throughout your entire presidency, but by the time you leave, you're more unpopular than you've ever been. This is roughly how it works. He can shatter that. All Joe Biden has to do, use this moment. Number one, actually succeed on this vaccine. COVID is in the worst place it's ever been in now. Our numbers are through the roof. We have 3,000 to 4,000 deaths a day. That's like a 9-11 every single day. If you get that vaccine out, if you distribute it and people actually get the vaccine and we can quell the spread of this virus, oh, my God, people are going to want to put them on Rushmore. People are going to want to put them on Rushmore. Beyond that, if you actually get these $2,000 checks out, which you guys promised, and I got another story on that in a little bit, hang tight for that. But if you get these $2,000 checks out and you do it now, you do it ASAP, I mean, could you imagine the vaccine works, he gets it out, $2,000 checks, gets it out, so the economy starts to improve also because the virus is getting better. He can maintain these incredibly high numbers. That's my point. My point is he can maintain these incredibly high numbers. You just have to actually do something with your popularity at the moment. And I don't know if he's going to do it. Again, as predicted, some of the executive orders are very positive. I told you guys the first day, the first week, you're going to be happy with a lot of the executive orders. Of course. He's just reversing a lot of the worst of the Trump era shit. Um, but can he hang on to these numbers? And the way to hang on to these numbers is to actually do something for the American people. So listen, we reserve judgment. We wait and see. But, you know, listen, expect the worst, hope for the best. That's my general approach to all this. Okay. Now we're going to move on. And we are going to talk about the checks. Okay, here we go, baby. I got the red light. What do you guys think about the lights behind me, man? Do you prefer the blue, the green, or the red? The blue, the green, or the red? How do you feel about it? I'm a big fan of the original, the OG, the green myself, but I actually like the uh, the red too, believe it or not. 
But some people say the red changes the mood in a negative direction, that it makes people feel more antsy and it makes people feel more angry. Like the red actually does give, like color actually does change emotion. It's actually really interesting. I believe they've studied this previously. Um, anyway, all right, where was I? Okay, the checks, here we go. We have a new report from Axios, and um, they're citing one Bernard Sanders here. Senator Bernie Sanders, incoming chair of the Senate Budget Committee, who caucuses with the Democrats, told CNN State of the Union on Sunday that Democrats plan to push for a coronavirus relief package through the chamber with a simple majority. Budget reconciliation would allow Democrats to forego the Senate's 60-vote requirement and could potentially speed up the next relief package for millions of unemployed Americans. Democrats hold the 50-50 split in the Senate with Vice President Kamala Harris serving as the tie-breaking vote. Quote, what we cannot do is wait weeks and weeks and months to go forward. We have, we have got to act now, Sanders said. So more of his quotes here. We're going to use reconciliation. That's 50 votes in the Senate plus the vice president to pass legislation desperately needed by working families in this country right now. When asked if he wants a relief bill passed before the former President Trump's impeachment trial begins the week of February 8th, he said, we've got to do everything. This is not, you don't have the time to sit around weeks on impeachment and not get vaccines into the arms of people. Okay, so now here's the bad news. We're seeing a lot of contradictory information on this. There are Democratic sources behind the scenes who've been whispering into the ears of folks in the media saying, Okay, did we say $2,000 checks? What we meant was $1,400 checks. Did we say $1,400 checks right away? What we meant was $1,400 checks by March. Did we say $1,400 checks by March? What we meant is $1,400 checks by April. So, point is, there are, there's a plethora of information coming from a plethora of different sources. And I don't know who to believe. You know, it's possible that there, that Bernie is being told behind the scenes because they know that, with, for, despite all of his flaws, he's an honest man and he's a man of principle. Um, they know that, hey, if we tell him that we're going to do it through reconciliation, he'll go out there and say we're going to do it through reconciliation. And maybe we could, you know, hold the base and make people not mad at us by doing that. But really, our plan is to not do it through reconciliation, or certainly to not do it immediately before impeachment. Um, so maybe they're just telling him that and they don't even intend on doing that. That's possible possible they told him that and they do intend on doing it. It's possible he's just stating what he wants to happen, but it's not what's actually going to happen. And the other sources behind the scenes that are saying the checks in March or April, that those are the correct, you know, that's the correct information. I genuinely don't know. Now, listen, I'm a reasonable dude. So my approach to this whole thing was, okay, you know what? I'm going to give them a week. I'm going to give them a week at least to get the, the, the ball in motion. So, listen, they ran on $2,000 checks. It was crystal clear. That's why they won Georgia. That's why Warnock won. That's why Ossoff won. Um, Biden was down there campaigning saying $2,000 checks. That's why you won. So you can't say that and then back out of it. But, again, I'm a reasonable dude. I understand a lot of stuff going on in Washington right now. It's a total mess. You've got to staff the administration. You've got to sign the initial executive orders, rolling back the worst of the Trump-era stuff that he did through executive orders. I get it. I get it. I'm a reasonable dude. I'm giving you a week. I'm giving you a week. If you don't come through in that first week, then I go nuclear. 
So, and by the way, I like how I'm talking about this as if there are actual consequences for what Kyle Kalinske prefers. No, what that means, I'm going to come out on my show and call them all lying pieces of shit because they would be lying pieces of shit. But listen, they already pissed me off, if I'm being honest with you, because they passed the $600 checks. And then after they already passed the $600 checks, Biden goes out there, campaigns in Georgia, and says, we're going to get you $2,000 checks. They already passed the $600. Now you're saying we're going to get you $2,000. I'm not good at math, but I know that $2,000 plus $600 is a total of $2,600. Well, what happened? As soon as they got elected, now that became, we're going to get you a total of $2,000. So the $600 already counts towards it, and so we're going to get you $1,400 more. See, that's some Weasley bullshit right there, man. That's some Weasley bullshit. But here's something I cannot abide. Because if you want to be overly kind to the Democrats, you say, okay, it was ambiguous. Because they argued $2,000 before the 600 was passed. So you could say they always meant a total of, of $2,000. Okay? But then also after the 600 passed, they kept saying 2000 which leads me to believe 2600 total. Anyway, the point is, it was a little bit ambiguous. I'll give you that. Okay? But what I will not abide is now moving the goalpost to, I know we said right away, but now I'm going to say March. And then somebody else comes and says, well, maybe not even March, maybe by April. That I will not abide. Because here's the reality. If Bernie's not right about this, if they're not going to go through reconciliation, they didn't want anything else to get through. They want the credit for proposing it, but they don't want to actually get it through and get the help to the American people. Sorry, that's the reality. Because they, listen, you have the House, you have the Senate, you have the presidency. You can get whatever you want through. So if you're not getting it through, it's because you don't want to get it through. You can't use the excuse of, oh, the big bad Republicans. Bullshit. You can get it through and you don't even have to eliminate the filibuster. You can use budget reconciliation, which is 51 votes. And in that situation, all you have to do is hold Manchin and hold Cinema and hold, like, Warner, the most conservative Democrats, and you can get it through. Now, listen, they're, they're bad. Those people are bad. But can you get a package through that includes $2,000 checks and a $15 minimum wage and, like, a couple other left-wing priorities that would really help people in the middle of this pandemic and depression? Yes! Yes, you can! So do it! So do it! So anyway, listen, this is my way of telling you, in no uncertain terms, if they don't get it through, they don't want it. They already backed off 2000 and went to 1400 total of 2000 But if they don't get that out ASAP, it's because they don't want to get it out ASAP. And that is totally unacceptable. Because then, and here's the main point, guys, you cannot browbeat and shame people who don't show up to vote for you in the next election if you stab them in the back here. Because you were crystal clear. You were on the record. It was $2,000 checks, and it was we're going to get to them ASAP. If the Republicans are the ones who are standing in the way, sure, Trump was for it, but you know, the Republican Party, like McConnell, they're the ones who are against it. They're the ones who are blocking it. Vote for us and you'll get it. You can't back off of that now. You can't back off of it because then you're just lying. You were lying the entire time. And that's unacceptable. So it doesn't matter. If you go to people in the next election cycle, they're going to say to you, you lied to me. At some point, human nature kicks in, guys. And it doesn't matter if your argument is, hey, my opponents suck 100% of the time, but I suck 87% of the time. Or you want to be kind? I suck 65% of the time, but they suck 100% of the time. People are going to say, you could take your math and shove it up your ass. Person to person, you told me $2,000 checks immediately. You didn't deliver on that, even though you could have delivered on that. So why would I vote for you? 
you can go fuck yourself. Neither party's representing me, and I'm going to sit on the bench this time. And you could wag your finger at me and shame me all day long, but guess what? I don't give a fuck because I'm a reasonable dude. I would have voted for you if you passed the $2,000 checks and you did it immediately like you said you would do, but you didn't do it. So listen, I'm warning everybody. I'm telling you beforehand, if you want to make sure that people show up to vote for you the next time, pass the checks. Do it now. It's really not that complicated. I told you there was an article in The Hill, Democrats look to repeat the Georgia victory throughout the South. And in that article, there wasn't a single line mentioning, hey, one of the main reasons why they won Georgia is because of the $2,000 checks. Not a single line mentioning that. How are you going to repeat the victory that you had in Georgia if you don't even understand one of the main reasons why you won Georgia? You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it, period. So Bernie better be right here. I hope Bernie's right because they're already fucking up in my opinion. What they could have done and what they should have done is day one, $2,000 checks on the floor. You, you could try to do it through regular order, which means you need 60 votes total so that the Republicans hop on. When the Republicans don't hop on, you make them pay a political price, and you immediately start the process to do budget reconciliation, and then you pass it with 51 votes or 53 or 54, however many you get, and then you rub it in and you say, we got you the $2,000 checks. The Republicans blocked it. Every Democrat's for it, or 99% of Democrats are for it. There was only 4% of Republicans who were for it. Look at which party's looking out for you. It would have been the easiest political win of all time, and it would have helped the American people colossally. But they're already fucking it up. But listen, again, I'm kind. I'll give them a week. That means they have a day or two more. By all means, let's see it. Let's see it. You said you're going to do the reconciliation. Let's see you do the reconciliation. I'm watching. You're going to get that $1.9 trillion package through reconciliation, right? Which is $1,400 checks and $15 minimum wage and a couple things in there. If you get that through reconciliation and you do it ASAP, I will give you credit. But none of this bullshit about waiting all the way until March or April because people need the help now. Bernie seems to understand that. Other Democrats don't seem to understand that, and they don't seem to care that they, they're brazen liars if they don't follow through on one of these main promises that they made. So I'm rooting for them, man. I really am. But if they don't do the right thing, it makes sense to go nuclear on them. Okay. Next. So a New York Times editor was fired the other day. Her name is Lauren Wolf. Um, She said the following on Twitter, Biden landing at Joint Base Andrews. Now I have chills, or excuse me, Biden landing at Joint Base Andrews now. I have chills. You can see pretty good engagement, 101 retweets, 265 quote tweets, 587 likes. Um, My guess is that probably got ratioed too, but I don't see the number of responses. Anyway, so... Now, there's this narrative that developed that this is why she was fired, this tweet. That's not exactly clear, because she apparently tweeted and deleted something else where she blamed Trump and said it's fucked up that Trump didn't send a military plane for Biden because all the previous presidents have done that. But apparently Biden chose to take his own plane. So she tweeted that and then she deleted it when she realized, okay, what I'm saying is not true. Um, 
Is it possible that both of these tweets led to why she was fired? Again, we don't know because according to the New York Times, they came out and said, no, actually, it didn't have to do with either one of these things, um, and we can't get into it. It can't get into stuff that's going on with personnel for privacy reasons, but suffice to say it wasn't what everybody's saying it is. It wasn't these tweets. There were other things that sort of led to the firing. Now, listen, do I believe the New York Times? I have no idea. I don't know who I believe. I'm totally agnostic on why she got fired, how she got fired, and all that stuff. You know, there is a reason. The truth is out there, but we'll probably never know it because you're going to get different narratives from everybody. The New York Times is going to say one thing. She's probably going to say another thing. And then the narrative that developed on Twitter is a third thing. So I, I don't know exactly why. Now, having said all that, let's get into, you know, some of the, some of the nooks and crannies. That's such a weird phrase. Some of the nooks and crannies of this conversation. So, um, Glenn Greenwald, friend of mine and friend of the show, he actually tweeted this and was making fun of it. and was like, listen, we don't expect objectivity, but Jesus Christ, you have chills because Biden's landing at Andrews Air Force Base? I mean, it's just pathetic, the fawning over, over Biden. Now, he didn't say, hey, look at what she said. She should be fired. He didn't say that at all. In fact, Glenn is against her being fired. But a lot of people were blaming Glenn that she got fired because Glenn made fun, fun of that tweet and, you know, it was, got some pretty good engagement. Um, it's not at all Glenn Greenwald's fault because, again, you can't say he made fun of somebody on Twitter, therefore any negative thing that happens to her is his fault. No, he was making fun of her on Twitter because she said something silly, and this is what you do on Twitter. to free and open platform. You want to dunk on somebody? Dunk away. Free country, right? Should be a free pr- platform, but it's debatable as to whether or not it is. Um, so I don't blame him. It's not his fault. In fact, he came out as soon as he learned she got fired and was like, I never said she should get fired. I was just making fun of her tweet because her tweet is stupid. Um, so I don't agree with the people on Twitter who are going after Greenwald. Now I will say, here's where the conversation gets interesting to me. This is a, this is an editor at the New York times. Now, yes, the argument is, Hey, this doesn't affect her job, so she shouldn't get fired. Like, she, this doesn't necessarily mean that she did a bad job at her job. It just means she said something silly. I agree. So I actually, overall, I agree she shouldn't get fired. But I will say this. Don't tell me that there isn't a culture in the media that isn't incredibly toxic, that they, they really are sycophantic to corporate Democrats, because that's exactly what this is. But that's the point, is it's not just Lauren Wolf. If you were to clean house and get rid of everybody who heaped fawning praise on Biden, unnecessary fawning praise, non-substantive praise, you would have to hire 60 to 70% of mainstream media. You would have to fire 60 to 70% because there were so many ridiculous points that were made. I I remember the guy on CNN who was saying, the lights look like Biden's outstretched arms giving the country a warm hug. He said something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along those lines. You know, uh, we're going to get to a story later where they compare Biden's speech to you know, a speech by Abraham Lincoln, and, and they say Bush and Obama and Biden are like the Avengers coming to save the day. Yes! And so, in all seriousness, these people in the media objectively suck at their jobs. So there is an argument there that you should fire 60 to 70% of the media, because if the job of the media is to inform the American people and be a watchdog of the people in power so that we can see when they're doing wrong things to correct course and educate the American people and look out for the American people. None of them are doing that job. None of them are doing that job. 
So in other words, if you cleaned house in the media and 60 to 70% of them got fired and got replaced by real people who are willing to be critical of those in power, then I would agree with it. But you can't just single out one of them and fire one of them, especially because there's way worse shit that comes out of the New York Times, you know? What is it, Thomas Friedman or David Brooks writing articles called, like, the disease of the Arab mind or some shit like that, and he gets to say that all day long and it's no problem, but then you got this person who's praising Biden and it's like they need to be fired? That just doesn't make sense. In other words, you cannot single her out and say, you did it, so we're going to fire you, but everybody else, we're not firing even though they do just as bad, if not worse stuff, on the exact same topic. Um, But again, then this gets back to the heart of the conversation, which is why was she actually fired? We don't know. We have no idea why she was actually fired. Um, It could be this. It could be this and the other tweet where she wrongly said it's fucked up that Trump didn't offer a military plane because Biden chose his plane, so she deleted that tweet. It could be a pattern of behavior that you and I don't know about. You know, we really don't know. It could be interpersonally behind the scenes with the coworker she worked for, there were complaints we don't know, okay? But um, suffice to say, if it's over this tweet that she got fired, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with firing her. Um, because again, the issue that she has is a systemic issue and it's 60 to 70% of the media, that's just as bad as she is. So if you really wanted a clean house and all the management said, we're gonna let go of everybody in the media and start from scratch and actually build up, build from the ground up, an institution that actually holds the powerful accountable, I would support it, no questions asked. But if you're going to single one person out, sorry, it makes no sense. Um, and it's wrong. But listen, note to the media, everybody better shape up because you are the caricature that the Fox News types make you out to be. And just to be clear, that's not me praising the Fox News types because they're the exact, they're the equal opposite caricature. They, you know, blow Trump 24-7 and blow the establishment Republicans 24-7. That's what Fox News did. Forget it. One American News Network and Newsmax are the worst of the worst. They feed every conspiracy under the sun. So they're terrible in in an equal and opposite way. You know, but you guys are going to be so sycophantic to the corporate Democrats that it's embarrassing. And there is no defending that on the substance. I will defend it in that she shouldn't have gotten fired. But on the actual substance... No, it's, you know, you guys are a mess and you need, you need to totally rework the culture of mainstream media. Having said that, from a selfish perspective, I shouldn't even want that because this is what, it's stuff like this that leaves a lane open for my show, you know, a lane open for people who, yes, I have an opinion. Yes, I'm on the left. Yes, I have beliefs and an ideology, but I'm upfront with my opinion. And also I'm willing to hold the powerful accountable, even if it's somebody who nominally I agree with, like, you know, everybody knows how much I supported Bernie Sanders, but I've had incredibly detailed criticisms of Bernie because I care more about the issues than I care about Bernie. And I swear you're not going to see that from these goofballs in, in mainstream media. You're just not because they're, they're more playing the partisan game. You know, it's the rah-rah blue team or rah-rah red team. It's really, really dim and stale and boring. I think it's just incredibly boring. bores me to tears. So anyway, wouldn't have fired her, but that doesn't mean um, she's doing a good job. The reason I wouldn't have fired her is because 60 to 70% of the media is just as shitty as she is. Okay, now, speaking of exactly that, speaking of this exact issue, we're going to move on to the crisis of credibility in the broader media, and I have some numbers for you on that. 
Okay, here we go. So there's a crisis of credibility with the media that we need to talk about. Trust in media has declined to an all-time low, and many news professionals are determined to do something about it. Faith in society's central institutions, especially in government and the media, is the glue that holds society together. The glue was visibly dissolving a decade ago, and now, for many millions of Americans, disappeared entirely. By the numbers here, for the first time ever, fewer than half of all Americans have trust in traditional media, according to data from Edelman's annual trust barometer shared exclusively with Axios. Trust in social media, social media as well, has hit an all-time low of 27%. Here we go. 56% of Americans agree with the statement that, quote, journalists and reporters are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or gross exaggerations. 56%. 58% think that most news organizations are more concerned with supporting an ideology or political position than with informing the public. When Edelman repolled Americans after the election, the figures had deteriorated even further, with 57% of Democrats trusting the media and only 18% of Republicans. So now let me show you this chart. This is absolutely incredible. Look at how it plummets. Just 46% of Americans overall trust the media. 46%. Now, this is beyond embarrassing, particularly for this reason. It's almost like the media is set up by its nature as an institution to be popular. Because think about it. What's the job of the media? The job of the media is to give you facts and information and educate you and hold the powerful accountable. That's the whole point of the media. So it's almost like the entire field is supposed to be, these are the people that you like and trust. These are the people who are giving you information, which would make you like them, and also they're on your side against powerful interests, whether it's the government or corporations, military, industrial complex, whatever it might be. They're here to look out for you, and you get to see their faces all the time. I mean, print is a little different, but if if you're talking about TV, you could see them all the time. Like every day, these people are put right in front of your eyes, so you're supposed to on some level, develop some sort of a connection, some sort of parasocial relationship, where it's like, here's the person that I trust giving me information and looking out for me. So by its nature, people are supposed to look at the media and be like, yeah, these are, of course these are the people I like. Of course. But only 46%, less than half of the country overall trust the media. Some of these numbers are beyond mind-boggling that 56% of the country basically says that they think journalists and reporters mislead on purpose or grossly exaggerate. 58% say that they put politics before they put informing the public. So in other words, it's one thing. If you give people the facts and information and then give your opinion after that based off the facts and information, people respect that. But what people are saying is it's the opposite. First comes my narrative and my political opinions Then I try to take whatever facts, cherry pick them, and fit them into that narrative. And again, 58% of the country says that's how it's done. And guys, you know what the crazy thing is? They're right. The people are right. I mean, let's go through one by one here. Well, not necessarily one by one, but let's talk about the major players in the game, starting on the right. One American News Network and Newsmax. Worst of the worst. 
feeding conspiracies all day long. They literally made people believe that Joe Biden wasn't going to be inaugurated even after Joe Biden won. And there were over 60 court cases that said that this is over and the Electoral College certified the, re- the results. They were still acting like, no, Trump might become president. Liars, conspiracy theorists, totally sycophantic to Trump. Fox News. We, do we even need to get started? They have the longest track record of terribleness. Nothing but Republican Party sycophants. They're the Republican Party propaganda arm. That's what they are. They're not telling you the truth. MSNBC, CNN. MSNBC is the worst offender of the Democratic Party Apologist Network, the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party. CNN, also propaganda of the Democratic Party, but sprinkle in some establishment Republicans as well. They do a little bit of the establishment wing of both sides is reasonable. That's sort of their lane. And then you have the nightly news. Again, pro-establishment is the main flavor and variety of nightly news stuff that you see. Now, when it comes to print outlets, some of them do a good job, but of course they don't have as many eyeballs on them because people have the attention span of a gnat, and so nobody wants to read dense articles. But like, okay, print does a decent job on many fronts, but also in many ways they do a terrible job. And a lot of the opinion sections of, uh, of the print outlets are horrendous, whether it's Wall Street Journal, New York Times, whatever it might be. So people don't trust the media, man, and they're right not to trust the media. They're right. And listen, social media also isn't trusted. That's totally understandable, because what do you mean by social media? Do you mean Facebook? Do you mean Twitter? Because, yeah, I mean, ultimately, even, even in a best-case scenario, it's like a bathroom wall. Like, those outlets are supposed to be free and open where anybody could post. So if you're going there for detailed analysis or factual reporting, yeah, of course you're not going to get it. But I would argue that's a category area. That's not even really what social media is for. You know what I mean? Like Facebook, Twitter. Um, it's just like a free and open forum, or at least in theory, that's what it's supposed to be. But, like, this goes hand-in-hand also with the degradation of all other institutions in this country. You know, like, people do not trust that they have a fair shot at life anymore because the institutions at every level have failed them. Corporate America has failed them. The government has failed them. I mean, all of Washington, D.C. is run off of rank, open bribery and corruption. Ever since the late 1970s, early 1980s, when they started allowing money in politics, basically unlimited, So the people who are being represented are the billionaires and the corporations and the well-off. And the rules are rigged in their favor and against average people. And so average people are getting screwed at every level institutionally. And the watchdogs of the powerful are not watchdogs of the powerful. They're partisan hacks. They're doing propaganda for the Democrats or the Republicans. So, of course, of course, this was going to happen. But the crazy thing is there will be zero self-reflection. And it goes back to the to the theory espoused by Matt Taibbi in his book, Hate, Inc., which is like, you have MSNBC, their main arguments are, hate the Republicans, hate your fellow American voters, then you have Fox News, hate your fellow American voters, the Democrats, and everybody beat each other's throats and let the rich run out the back door with all the money. The establishment keeps winning, keeps screwing you, keeps running out the back door with all the money, and Americans are at each other's throats because that's who your main enemy is. And we covered a poll on this recently where, yeah, most Americans think the biggest divide is the partisan divide. So they fear other Americans more than they fear the corruption, the wealthy elite who are screwing them, who are rigging the system. And it's terrible. And here we are. And now even the media, what's supposed to be a beloved institution that educates you and is on your side, people know it's not educating you and people know it's not on your side. And so here we are. It's really gross, man. Again, from a selfish perspective, I should be like, cool, because this helps people like me, because I'm an alternative outlet where you can go to get opinions and information. Um, 
But no, I'd rather have the country be in a better place, and I'd rather have the media do a good job overall. So I think these numbers are even going to get worse, man. But there will be zero self-reflection from the media. Because just like Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent, he lays out how, you know, the problem really starts with the filtration process. Like, they're only going to hire the people who they know are not going to rock the boat and who they know are going to represent the worldview that they want represented. And so, of course, there's going to be no course correction and no self-reflection, and we're going to keep going further and further down the wrong path. And these people will be just as smug in their little insular bubble, thinking Americans love them, even though now we know the polls show Americans hate the media. Okay. All right, let me do one more, then we'll take a break. So we have a new silly argument from the right. Um, It's this idea that Biden is being divisive and he doesn't believe in unity. Marco Rubio is a great example of this mindset. He said the following. A radical leftist agenda in a divided country will not help unify our country. It will only confirm 75 million Americans' biggest fears about the new administration. So um, I responded to this and I said the following. The people are unified. The elites get in the way. And then I show a poll which was from 2016. Now, granted, polls to this day show a similar dynamic. But the reason I always use this poll is because they kind of consolidated all the issues together in one poll. Much of Bernie Sanders' agenda polls well. Strongly or somewhat support. 73% want to raise taxes on the wealthy. 66% want to raise taxes on big corporations. 55% want single-payer health care. 59% want free college. So the point that I'm making to Marco is that you can't, first of all, you can't say Biden's doing a radical leftist agenda because he's not. He's a milquetoast neoliberal centrist. I mean, that's what he is. So he, in many ways, it's fair to characterize him as a moderate Republican. So if Marco looks at moderate Republican actions and says, that's radical extremism, no, perhaps you're the radical extremist, and you're a radical extremist in the right-wing direction. Okay, so first of all, he's just wrong in his description of Biden. But beyond that, the country actually isn't that divided. Like, yes. On culture war issues, people are divided. I think that's fair. Although, even on that front, I think they overstate just how much people are divided. Okay, But sure, on culture stuff, sure, down partisan lines, people are divided. The people who have brain worms and are political junkies and are mired in this stuff 24-7. But objectively speaking, take a couple steps back, look at the numbers. You pick the issue, and we'll show you the numbers. The overwhelming majority of Americans, people make fun of me because I always say overwhelming majority, but it's true. The overwhelming majority of Americans actually sort of agree on the major issues. People want, to, people want to raise the minimum wage. People want universal health care. You know, uh, people want to end the wars. All the, the things I just named you from the Bernie Sanders agenda, like raise, raising taxes on the rich. So, in other words, here's a better way of looking at politics. The American people are fairly united on many issues and the elites get in the way of that agenda being implemented. Now, why? Why is that? Well, the elites get in the way because they're corrupt. They take, when they run for office, they take a lot of money from campaign donors. And it could be big pharma, for-profit health insurance companies, military-industrial complex, Wall Street, 
they take money from all of these outlets, and then would you look at that when they get in power? They don't rock the boat, and they don't go after, they don't do any policies that would piss off those contingencies. And so that means they are necessarily not doing the will of their constituents, the American people. So his whole conception of politics here is off. But this is the only thing that they're going to go to now with Biden in the White House. They're going to pretend like Joe Biden is some sort of radical extremist and, oh, my God, look at what he's doing. But the fact of the matter is, no, Biden, if anything, is too aligned with the elites. And what he needs to do is actually represent the will of the people. And if he were to actually represent the will of the people, he would be a vessel for the fact that the country is largely united on the actual policy issues. But, you know, I won't hold my breath for that. It'll be, you know, marginally better than Trump, and uh, it'll be not as destructive, but still fairly destructive. But this caricature that's created by the right is just hilarious and totally disconnected from reality. Okay, let me take a a quick break, y'all. When we come back, still got plenty of stuff to get to. Stay right there.
All right, welcome back, y'all. Welcome back, Cotter. Okay, let's continue. Still plenty of stuff to get to, plenty of stuff happening in the world of politics today. So where were we? We were making fun of Marco Rubio? Yes, we were. So the censorship hammer is dropping, y'all. The censorship hammer is dropping. Let me set you up for this. As predicted by yours truly, you were warned, Twitter suspends Antifa accounts with more than 71,000 followers. So the hammer dropped. The hammer most definitely dropped. Now, it wasn't just one Antifa account with 71,000 followers. It was like a number of Antifa accounts where the total added up to 71,000 followers. I don't remember the exact numbers, but, you know, some had like 7,000 here or there, and it, it it was a mix. But some with a decent number of followers, a lot with a decent number of followers, my guess is that these are more people who are really directly involved and always going to protests and are probably crucial to the organizational aspect of it, um, they were suspended. They were suspended. Now, that's actually not the only thing that happened. Facebook, at the same time, shut down the Socialist Workers Party in Britain. They had a Facebook page, decent number of followers. Again, they were directly involved in organizing. Facebook shut them down. Facebook also banned uh, International Youth and Students for Social Equality, at the University of Michigan, so a left-wing group from the University of Michigan, they were banned. Um, You know, we've discussed on this show, there were a number of articles, specifically when it comes to the issue of Palestine, um, there's a lot of banning that goes on. There's a lot of different pages that are for, you know, freeing Palestine, and in social media circles, they get tagged as anti-Semitic, and then they get pulled down. You know, Facebook has actually worked with the Israeli government on a number of pages that they viewed as problematic, and Facebook does the bidding of the Israeli government and just pulls them down with the broad label of like, ah, we say these are anti-Semitic. It doesn't even have to be anti-Semitic. It could just be a pro-Palestine organization, and they get pulled down. And then there are the classic examples that we've talked about. Recently, Red Scare was taken off of Twitter, a uh, left-wing podcast. The Chapo Trap House Reddit was pulled down. Um, And then, of course, a number of left-wing accounts were pulled down under the guise of, like, their Russian disinformation. And maybe even more importantly, there's a lot of, like, outsider, anti-establishment left-wing websites that have been deranked on Google. So it used to be the case that if you Google imperialism, a bunch of stuff would come up, um, or anti-imperialism, a bunch of stuff would come up, and it would be Chris Hedges on that topic. And now Chris Hedges' stuff is deranked, and it's significantly harder to find. So, listen, I hate to say I told you so, except I don't hate to say I told you so. I actually love to say I told you so in this sense. Well, no, I hate it in that the bad stuff actually happened. I would prefer the bad stuff didn't happen. But, yes, this is exactly what we were talking about. Every time the topic of censorship comes up or deplatforming comes up or deprioritization on YouTube, which is another thing that we feel the brunt of that one, but – I told you guys, it's like it's not even that, hey, they're only banning bad right-wingers. 
and so the slippery slope is going to come for us. No, the argument was it has already come for us, and it's a package deal. That's the way it works. In other words, you can't say, I want to ban people on the far right for political content, but I want to protect the left-wingers for political content, because it's a package deal. Now, again, let me be clear. This is not me saying that direct threats of violence should be allowed. Quite the contrary, direct threats of violence are illegal under the First Amendment of the United States of America. The acting interpretation of the First Amendment, the legality of it is, there are very few exceptions. One of those exceptions is you can't do direct threats of violence. So is this me saying, hey, direct threats of violence are swell, y'all? No, not at all. But the point is, direct threats of violence are actually pretty easy to figure out. Like, you know what a direct threat of violence is and what a direct threat of violence isn't. But outside of, like, direct threats of violence or clear cases of libel or slander, like, you do have to allow even people with the most odious of opinions because that's what freedom of speech is. And it goes back to the famous Noam Chomsky quote, which is, like, if you don't believe in freedom of speech, for those opinions which you despise the most, then you don't believe in freedom of speech then you don't believe in freedom of speech. So in in other words, as soon as everybody started cheering like the deplatforming of Alex Jones, you made your bed and you were going to sleep in it. Because listen, even in his extreme case, like let's take the worst thing he ever did, which was the questioning of the Sandy Hook massacre. The problem was when specific families and people and their names were brought up, which led to like harassment campaigns. So if you say, hey, this, this is like, in some ways, a direct threat of violence or a call to harassment, if you want to make that argument and if the, the companies agree, okay, I see, I think everybody sees it, but the solution would be to that problem, that's the video that gets pulled down. That video, the video where he says those things. So in other words, the response was instead the internet death penalty for Alex Jones, that you maybe did this thing which is unacceptable, and we all agree it's unacceptable, right? If you're harassing the parents of Sandy Hook victims, of course. But the solution was just nuke his whole channel and his whole existence online. Now, not only do I not like Alex Jones, I'm perhaps the biggest Alex Jones hater on the planet. I've done more videos making fun of Alex Jones than maybe anybody has ever. And so I took it upon myself to like laugh at him and mock him and even debunk a lot of his garbage arguments over the course of all the years that he was out there. So you, can, you can't look at me and say, oh, you're soft on Alex Jones. Quite the opposite. I'm, I'm more aggressive against him than anybody. However, you need to have the conversation from a place of principle where you understand and realize once you open that door, once you ban the Alex Jones types, that's it. It's over. Because now you just agreed on the principle of deplatforming and censorship. And so this was going to happen. There was no doubt about it. It's the oldest trick in the book. The first people that you target are people who are so broadly and universally despised that everybody kind of goes, nah, I get it a little bit. I, I can see why you went after him. But aha, they just got you. They snagged you already. You agreed to the principle, and then it's always going to come back to bite you in the ass. I mean, even our friends over at Jacobin, they had stuff that was deprioritized or deranked. They had stuff censored because they were talking about Bolivia. You know, like try having an honest conversation about South American politics. They will immediately go after you. You know, like the idea that you talk about Evo Morales, even in like a nuanced way, 
they're going to say that you're the one who's doing disinformation. You see what I'm saying? Again, Russiagate. You push back against Russiagate, you're the one that's called a conspiracy theorist, even though we were proven correct. Talk about the 2016 um, Democratic primary and how WikiLeaks showed the documents. They, they rigged it. They effectively rigged it against Bernie. They would ban you. They wouldn't ban the people who are saying everything is fair. They would say you're the conspiracy theorist. The Iraq war, if these, if these all existed, if these platforms all existed back during the lead up to the Iraq war, they would have banned the people who were arguing that we shouldn't go to Iraq. They would have said, you're the conspiracy theorist if you questioned the weapons of mass destruction. Do you see the problem here? You cannot have a ministry of truth because who is going to watch the watchmen? You set up this council of you know, wise elders who get to determine who gets to live and die on the internet and who can exist, who has a right to exist. Of course those people are going to have their own biases and their own opinions and their own perceptions and misperceptions and their own conspiracy theories, even though they all swear they're not conspiracy theorists. So here we are. We told you it was happening. And it's scary because, you know, to be in a situation like this, you never know when it's going to come for you. You never know. And you never know when somebody's going to find some old thing you said and take it out of context and like, aha, enemy, see? It's like, and what's your recourse? You have no recourse. You have no recourse. There's no open and transparent process. If you're going to have something as serious as like the internet death penalty, there should be a process. There should be recourse. There should be checks and balances. But no, everybody was just begging for the corporate overlords, the Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires to police the discourse. Why the hell would you trust Jack or Mark Zuckerberg to police the discourse? They're some of the last people I would ever trust to police the discourse. It's ridiculous. So here we are. Antifa accounts gone. Socialist Workers Party in Britain gone. International Youth and Students for Social Equality at the University of Michigan gone. Bunch of pro-Palestine groups gone. TikTok, son. It's only a matter of time before they come for all of us. And that's, uh, that's a devastating place to be. Okay, next. All right, here we go. Friend of the show, June, she's uh, of the YouTube channel Shoe On Head. She went to a Trump event in D.C. It was the Trump event. It was the one that became what I call a diet coup or an attempted insurrection. Um, She was there before shit really popped off. And she went there with one simple question. She wanted to ask all these hardcore Trump supporters What do you think about burning the flag? Should burning the American flag be illegal? Now, it's a long video. I'll leave it in the video description box. If you want to watch it, you should watch the entire thing. Again, check in the video description box uh, for that. But let me show you a little portion of it, and then we'll talk about it. I went into the lion's den for two days with one simple question. Do you think burning the American flag should be legal?
However, Patrick, um, I believe in freedom of speech. <laughs> That was interesting. That was fascinating. Um, the last, one of the last ones was the most problematic one. You should burn the person who burns the flag. So again, you're just seeing a little sampling here. She talked to way more people. Video description box. Check it out. Check out the full video. Um, very interesting. So I asked her what percentage of the people were for making it illegal and what percentage said it's a First Amendment free speech issue. We got to go hands off even if we don't like it. She said about 70% of the Trump supporters wanted it to be illegal in one form or another. You know, and, and the answers were all over the map. So some of them were like, yes, it should be illegal, but it should be a fine. Some were, yes, it should be illegal, but it should be a year in jail. Some said 10 years in jail. Some said the death penalty. So the list goes you know, on and on. Every position you could think of is a position that was espoused. Um, now, funny enough, what I did is I looked up polling on this because I do remember when this became a big issue, Trump casually said during a rally that we should make it illegal. It should be, you should be in prison. You should ha have jail time if you burn the American flag. So Trump casually said that in a rally. And so it was sort of injected back into the discourse. This was probably in what, like 2018 or something like that. Um, I think it was right around the time too, that the Kaepernick thing was happening where he wanted somebody fired. He wanted Kaepernick fi fired for kneeling in peaceful protest, which again, deeply against free, the principle of free speech. But even with Trump in the government trying to push a private company to do something, to fire somebody because of their freedom, you could argue that might even be against the First Amendment, the legality of the First Amendment, not just the principle of free speech. Um, but So I looked it up. 49% of the country, of the country, says that burning the American flag should be illegal. That's amazing to me that it's that high for the entire country. Um, and 67% of Republicans say that um, it should be illegal, and they say the punishment should be it gets you your citizenship stripped. That if you burn the American flag, 
your citizenship should be taken away. Again, 67% of, of Republicans say that. So that's interesting because, again, she said 70% of the people she spoke to said it should be illegal in one form or another. So in other words, the numbers check out, you know, that like what she went to this Trump event and it actually was an accurate sample size for when you do a broader poll with way more people. So listen, that's really interesting. She goes on to point out in the video that um, this is a settled issue. It's a settled issue in the sense that it's been litigated. The Supreme Court has ruled on it. And I agree with what the Supreme Court said. The Supreme Court, even many of the conservatives on the Supreme Court basically said, hey, I don't like it. I don't have to like it. But the fact of the matter is it's free speech because it's symbolism. So, you know, this country, the way it should be is that as long as you're not hurting somebody else, you should be able to do whatever you want. You know, as long as you're not physically hurting somebody else, you should be able to do whatever you want. And, you know, I would stretch that principle even further. I think you should be able to put whatever drug in your body you want to put in your body. I think we should have um, physician-assisted suicide, so you have the right to die. If you have some terrible terminal illness and you're in pain every day, the idea that the state can force you to keep living in pain, I think that's barbaric. I think in many ways we treat our pets in a more civilized fashion than we treat grandma and grandpa. Sorry, I think that's the case. So this is just such a great example of that principle, principle in action, which is if you're burning the American flag, it's obviously symbolic speech, and you're not hurting anybody, so of course you should be allowed to do it. And the fact that there was one person who she talked to, I don't know if you saw it in the video, but there was somebody wearing some sort of article of clothing or something that said, like, the Constitution or the First Amendment on it. And she pointed out, like, that was one of the guys who said it should be illegal to burn the American flag. So that's, that's the frustrating thing, is that there are so many examples of people who love the iconography and, like, the feeling of America, and they want to act like they're the most patriotic and most principled. But then when push comes to shove in terms of their actual beliefs, they're quite authoritarian and quite anti-American. And that's absurd. I mean, it's annoying. It's stupid. Like, really? You care so deeply about America and our principles and the Constitution, but you don't understand, you know, one of the major First Amendment cases in this country's history, and you don't understand that that does equal free speech, and that's so people are allowed to do whether or not you like it. It's just so, it's hypocritical too. It's just dumb. It's just dumb. But anyway, really interesting video. Again, check it out in the video description box if you want to watch the whole thing. Um, I, I got to tell you guys, I really like these uh, on the ground talking directly to people style videos because you get, it's interesting. It's interesting. And the other thing is she did nothing misleading. Like I do get the sense that some outlets would have asked all these people and then only taken the worst answers and showed them as if everybody at the Trump rally gave the worst possible answer. But she asked, and yeah, 30% of them were reasonable, you know? And so I think that's an important piece of information in context. Because if you just show the negative stuff, it's like you get this misleading feeling that everybody at the Trump rally wants to execute anybody who burns the flag. And that's just not true. And an uncomfortably high number of them do want to do that, but it's not all of them. And that's the point. So anyway, it's great in that it's also not edited and not Weasley in any way, shape or form. But I like this. I like this format. I like when you go talk to regular people and it doesn't have to be at a Trump rally. It could be, you know, could have been at a Bernie rally. It could be at a Biden rally. It could be whatever, just to hear what people think about these things, because it's interesting. It's something that, you know, I could do all day long. Okay.
oh boy, we're going to talk about Tim Pool. Is this something I want to do? No. <laughs> it is not. But nonetheless, I will do it. Here I am, y'all. Here I am. Tim Pool talked about this new cover for Jacobin Magazine. They came out with a new issue. and has a new cover. And listen, this thing kind of went viral. It blew up for a number of reasons. But um, apparently in this clip that you're about to see, he went on for over 20 minutes with his guest. Um, let's watch, and then I'll tell you the problem. And we'll talk about Joe Biden being president and this glorious image from Jacobin Magazine. Now, I'll tell you what I find particularly fascinating about this is Jacobin is like socialist. Like, they're, they're DSA, many are there's like communism. It's, it, they get their name from the French Revolution, and they put a cover out, and it's Joe Biden as Jesus with the sun behind his head, literally, imagery of Jesus. And there are people below him, like, looking up and cheering and worshiping him. Huh. It, and there's angels filming and interviewing him. What are these people thinking? Stop with this obsession with putting people above yourself and putting all their responsibilities and all your failures and all your hopes into one person and, and take some gosh darn personal responsibility for yourself. It, it, but when you have a media ecosystem that is acting like Joe Biden is literally Jesus, then I don't see how we, we actually solve problems. Just to clarify my point, it, Joe Biden could do really horrible things and they don't care. But it's funny because they say the same thing about you know Donald Trump. This is people worshiping Jesus Biden, who hasn't done anything. What did he? What did he do? He just beat his heart up against the wall. Yeah, he defeated yeah. the devil. There you go. Um, the evil Trump. Tim, 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 Tim. What are we gonna do with you, man? What are we gonna do with you? It was satire. The, the magazine cover is satire. So in other words, Jacobin is making the exact same point that Tim Pool is making there. The point that Jap Jacobin is making is like corporate media, mainstream media, um, you know, establishment Democrats, they have this fawning love and adoration for Joe Biden, and he's done dick. And where adversarial to Joe Biden we have a different ideology and belief system than Joe Biden. And so we're mocking the idea that the people who are supposed to be holding him accountable are like heaping fawning praise on him. We're mocking the idea. You see the other Democratic figures like bowing at his knees or whatever. We're mocking the idea that he's any sort of real solution. I mean, in the frickin' magazine cover, if you look near the top of it, there are drones. There are drones there. So it's like, you know, the juxtaposition of like you're heaping all this praise on him and he's going to continue this illegal and unconstitutional drone program, which is killing massive numbers of innocent civilians. So, I mean, listen, I think the thing that's most surprising to me, because we all make mistakes, we all misinterpret things from time to time. I've definitely done it before. But there was a number of people in that room. There were like four or five people in that room, right? Not one of them was like, maybe this is satire. I, I, and I get it, man. When you watch CNN, they actually are heaping fawning praise as just as bad, you know, with the whole, like, the lights look like Joe Biden's arms outstretched to give the American people a warm hug. <laughs> yeah, somebody compare, on MSNBC, compare his speech to Lincoln's address. 
you know, you have people who said Bush and, and Obama and Biden all together. It's like the Avengers are coming to save the day. Yes. So listen, maybe that's why it was so hard for some people to realize this, but yeah, mainstream media, corporate Democrats, corporate media, they're, they're going to, they're going to suck off Biden in the same way that Fox news and now one American news network and Newsmax sucked off Trump. And so it is gross. And that, that does exist. The dynamic exists. But again, when you talk about Jacobin, you have to understand <laughs> that there's quite a difference between leftists and corporate Democrats or leftists and even liberals. You have to understand that, especially if you, know, you comment on politics for a living. And that's what Tim Pool does. So um, there were drones in the magazine cover, man. Obviously, the thing was satire. There's even some people on the left who saw it and didn't realize it was satire. It's very clearly satire. Um, So people need to internalize this very basic point. There are those of us on the left who are very, very critical of Joe Biden and are going to try to hold him accountable in accordance with our own ideology and our own principles and our own beliefs. But funny enough, the accusation is also an accusation that Listen, a lot of people on the right did this, this sort of silliness with Trump. Like, there was a pretty strong contingent of the right that no matter what Trump said, no matter what Trump did, no matter how hypocritical he was, no matter if he contradicted old school conservative ideology that people previously believed in, they would go hand in hand with him and they would defend Daddy Trump in such a sycophantic way. And again, perhaps the worst example of this was when it was very obvious and very clear that not only did Joe Biden win, but every attempt to say he didn't and try to prove it in court backfired spectacularly because Biden actually did win. And you still had people who were like, no, Trump says it's not over yet, so I don't think it's over yet. One American News and Newsmax are telling me there's still a chance, even though the Electoral College already certified the Biden win, already did it. But there there was still a strong contingent of the right that was that sycophantic to Trump. So in some ways... You could say there's projection here that like, no, that mindset of the base of the right always falling in line for Trump, it's actually quite the opposite for the left base. The left base is going to be the quickest to criticize Biden. It's going to be the corporate Democrats who are sycophantic who always fall in line. But the actual left base will be the most critical of Joe Biden. And that's a point that Tim Pool and everybody involved in politics needs to digest because it's the truth. That's the way it works. The the right-wing base is most defined by being sycophantic to Trump, and that's why they want these new networks like One American News Network and and Newsmax to exist. It's ideology-free. It's totally vapid. It's just defend daddy more. Let's let's love our authoritarian leader. Whereas the left base, as you're going to find out, as you're already finding out, no, we are the most critical of Joe Biden, as that Jacobin cover lays out. They're making the exact point that Tim Pool is making. Like, he didn't even do anything yet. Right. That's the point. So stop heaping the fawning praise on him. Anyway, uh, Rational National had a great title for his video on this. It's something along the lines of satirical cover flies right over Tim Pool's beanie. (laughs) Indeed, good sir. Indeed. Okay, next. Um, We're actually going to cover 
the exact kind of thing that Tim Poole thought the Jacobin, was, the Jacobin magazine cover was doing. All right, here we go. So I've showed you guys a number of examples of the media being just totally gross and sycophantic to Biden in a similar way that Fox News was like that to Trump and now One America News Network and Newsmax were like that to Trump. Um, I mean, you had the example of the CNN host saying, the lights in D.C. look like Biden's arms stretched out to give the country a warm embrace. That was one thing that was disgusting. The first question for Biden's White House press secretary, the very first question was something along the lines of, do you believe in truth? Or do you want to smear us truth tellers like the previous administration? And she was like, I believe in truth. And everybody's like, oh, truth. Oh, I love truth. And my opponents hate truth. It's just so childish from beginning to end. Just, and, and the examples go on and on. The, one of the main questions that they screamed at Biden during the inauguration day, CNN was saying, sir, sir, can you unify the country? So listen, they, they're playing favorites. All corporate media outlets are going to love Biden in the same way Fox News loved Trump and defended Trump. Um, and we're watching it in real time. But now I want to go back again, give you one more example of this. This is from inauguration day on MSNBC. Take a look. To me, so striking about today was that kind of comforting sense, even with the masks, even with the distancing, even without the crowd, you know, those shots inside Statuary Hall that we're familiar with, you know, from every inauguration, the, the, the sight of uh, the Clintons and the Bushes and the Obamas, you know, the, the Avengers, you know, sort of the <laughs> Marvel superheroes back up there together all in one place. Well, with their friend Joe Biden, all of them, I think, feeling like that, that all of them sharing that same view that a lot of Americans have, which is that, you know, we did narrowly avert catastrophe in America and that they were all there to kind of, you know, kind of to buttress their buddy Joe Biden and see him in some ways as the, as the natural and necessary corrective to what's been going on. And I think the things, you know, you said soaring a second ago about the speech. I agree. There was a lot about the speech. It was soaring. It may have been the best speech Joe Biden's ever given. It was certainly, I, I would argue, the most important in the sense that it was not a political speech at all. It was a speech that had a much higher purpose than that. And I don't want to go overboard and compare it to Lincoln's second inaugural, but aspirationally, that's where it wanted to live. I don't want to go overboard and compare it to Lincoln, but it's totally like Lincoln. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on. Listen, you know, it occurred to me that really when it comes to mainstream media, this is cultural for them. It's cultural. They culturally, they're in alignment with a Joe Biden. Culturally, they're in alignment with the Democratic establishment. And so really everything else is ancillary to them. Because I watched the same speech that he watched. By the way, I was intelligent, and I waited until after, and I watched it on double speed on YouTube so that I could, you know, I wasted half the time that, that all you fuckers wasted because I didn't want to sit there through the whole thing in normal speed. Anyway, the speech was dripping with platitudes and cliches and, like, America good and unity good. Now, listen, I get it. Trump genuinely was a divisive president. And so is there a place? for some stuff on unity, sure. 
But the whole, he didn't say anything really policy-wise in the entire speech, or very little policy-wise in the entire speech. And this is a unique moment in American history. We're in a situation that's even worse than 2008 and 2009 in the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. We're in a way worse situation like that. In fact, I'm going to get to numbers on that in a different segment. But so it's like a Great Depression. We're back in a new Great Depression. And so everything you should be saying is like time to do a new New Deal, time to redistribute from the top to everybody else, time for real structural reform in this country in a way that really lives up more to the promise of what this country is supposed to be on paper. Like, it really is time for a new FDR economically. And Biden is just given, like, the speech he gave, it could have been delivered in in the late 1970s, the early 1980s, or the 1990s. Like, it's just, he's a politician who's stuck mentally in, like, the 80s, the Reagan era, where everything is just like, let me blow smoke up Americans' ass and talk about how great everybody is and how great we are and unity's wonderful and America's wonderful and here's some platitudes and here's some cliches and we could do it if we do it together. Do what? I don't know because he doesn't say that part in the speech. Certainly not Medicare for All. He doesn't believe in Medicare for All. He just released his new plan and his new plan is watered down even further from when he said, I'm going to do a public option. So now it's, you know, let's expand COBRA and let's, Let's do a plan that's approved quite literally by insurance lobbyists. And again, we covered that in a different segment the other day. But like, I, it, it behooves me that anybody could look at that speech and say, oh, it's like Lincoln and it's the most important one he's ever given and it was wonderful. I don't know how anybody could believe that unless it's cultural. So literally all they wanted was somebody to go up there and say, Trump is bad, America's good, let's unify or something. Unify around what? You want to know what I'm in favor of unifying around? An agenda for the American people. Take all of the issues. The majority want to raise the minimum wage. The majority want universal health care. The majority want to end the wars. The majority want to raise taxes on corporations and the wealthy. The majority want an infrastructure deal. I will unify around that agenda because that's the people's agenda. But no, when he talks about it, he just means like, let's all agree Trump is bad and America is good and I'll do some tweaks around the edges and shut up and take it and love it. And the media is going to do exactly that. They're going to love it. They're going to love it. Whatever little crumbs. Oh, yes. So much better than Trump. Yes. What a low bar. What an insanely low bar. And final point is the Avengers thing, man. Oh, Jesus Christ, the Avengers thing. I want to die. Imagine looking at Bush, Obama, and Biden and saying, the Avengers, the superheroes are back. The superheroes that presided over a system which led to Donald Trump. How does it not occur to you? that by going back to the thing that led to the problem, you're not going to fix the problem. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, Obama or Biden is equally as bad as Trump, because I think that's absurd. But what I am saying is, if they did more, if they did more, if they really top-down reworked the system, responded properly to the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession, perhaps we would have never gotten Trump in the first place. We would have never gotten Trump. So, you know, their half measures backfired. And now the media is cheering the new half measures which are coming and calling them the Avengers. I mean, George W. Bush is a torture and a war criminal. Obama continued many of those foreign policy failures. They, he bailed out Wall Street just like Bush did. They both bailed out Wall Street. No strings attached. Bonuses were paid out. Don't act like these people are above criticism because that's absurd. But that's what the media does. So, again, it's cultural. 
it's cultural for these people. To them, you know, the, the actual substantive issues are off the table. It doesn't matter. It's all about the aesthetic of Joe Biden and the aesthetic of the establishment. The adults are back in charge. The adults led to the rise of the man, baby, child, wannabe dictator. God damn it. How do you not acknowledge this? Because they're too busy sucking off Joe and the establishment. So here you go. I mean, the, the examples are endless. You know, again, that's why I'm playing a video. How far? It was like a week ago when we had Inauguration Day. I'm still playing a video from Inauguration Day because these are endless. These are endless with how sycophantic they are. Now, the problem is a lot of people will make the mistake of seeing how sycophantic CNN and MSNBC are to Democrats, and then they go to Fox because at least they're not sycophantic to Democrats. But Fox is sycophantic to Republicans. So they do the exact same thing. That's the problem. So it's just pathetic. Our media environment is terrible. And again, I can't think of a better example than this. Okay, let's talk about Fox News and how they're trying to shift the discussion and blame Democrats already. See, I'm, you know, what do I do? I go after everybody, man. I got a machine gun that's turned on everybody. So Fox News is already trying to shift the discussion and blame Democrats for problems caused by Trump or during Trump. Watch this. If the past is prologue, uh, we can look to how Barack Obama handled his years when things went wrong. He quickly blamed Bush. Remember, watch. Now, I want to say a few words about the deepening economic crisis that we've inherited and the need for urgent action. Now, my administration inherited a deficit of over $1 trillion. We've inherited an economic crisis as deep and as dire as any since the Great Depression. This happened for six years, and we saw it again today with Joe Biden. He said there's no plan to get rid of the vaccine, to get, put the vaccine in people's arms. They left it with, there was no plan at all, already exaggerating, saying that his plan of a million shots a day uh, is something he's going to aspire to. They say, you're basically, we're basically already doing that. So can you see this happening again, blame Trump instead of blame Bush? If the past is prologue, uh, we can look to... Oh, it's running again. Never mind. I'm just going to let it play again, guys. I'm just going to let this play again. It was double-clipped. ...about the deepening economic crisis that we've inherited and the need for urgent action. Now, my administration inherited a deficit of over $1 trillion. We've inherited an economic crisis as deep and as dire as any since the Great Depression. This happened for six years, and we saw it again today with Joe Biden. He said there's no plan to get rid of the vaccine to get, put the vaccine in people's arms. They left it with, there was no plan at all, already exaggerating, saying that his plan of a million shots a day uh, is something he's going to aspire to. They say, you're basically, we're basically already doing that. So can you see this happening again? Blame Trump instead of blame Bush? Well, I'm pretty sure that Joe Biden will probably try to do that, but let's remember, Donald Trump and no American was responsible for this pandemic or the recession it unleashed. Uh, no, Trump is at least partly responsible for it because he could have handled it way better than he did, you know? Um, yeah, other countries have weathered this storm way better than we have. So to say like, oh, no, no, it's not his fault. 
There's no way Tom Cotton would say that if it was a Democrat in power and the exact same set of facts unfolded. There's no way he would say it, okay? But here's what I love about this clip. All of their arguments against Biden are so lame. Like, none of them are substantive. It's like this new line of argument. Marco Rubio and a bunch of Republicans are using it. Biden's being divisive. He doesn't believe in unity, even though he calls for unity every 17 seconds. It's like, really, of all the criticisms, that's the one you settle on? The one you settle on is the guy who can't stop bringing up unities against unity? It's just so dumb. Now, to this point, though, how hilarious is that? They are they're playing a clip from January of 2009 where Obama was like, hey, we inherited a really terrible economic situation. And they're like, aha, already making excuses, blaming Bush. January 2009, he was sworn in January of 2009. Like, literally, that, that could have been within the first week of his administration. In fact, it probably was. So for him to say, hey, man, the economy's not doing so hot because of what the previous guys were doing, that's just factual. That's just factual. He didn't even do any economic policies yet because he just got in. So how's he supposed to take responsibility when it wasn't even the effects of his policies? But they play that clip as if it's like a, look at how unreasonable they are. He wanted to blame Bush for things that Bush should have been blamed for. Now, there were other clips from later on, but listen, a lot of the stuff he mentioned there, they're just facts. You don't have to like Obama to acknowledge that the things he said there were factual, because they were factual. They were. There's no doubt about it. 100% they were factual. So, yes, listen, we have to stop having these conversations in a partisan hack way. It has to be nuanced and intelligent and, but more importantly, objective, because here's what Biden can and should be blamed for, the consequences of Joe Biden's actions. Here's what Biden shouldn't be blamed for, the consequences of Donald Trump's actions. So as time moves forward, there are going to be policies that Biden implements, and then they'll have a negative effect, and then we'll say, that's Biden's fault. But if you're blaming him already for shit like like the 4,000 people that died the day he was inaugurated, you're an idiot. And there are people who are already, you know, somebody made it as a joke meme, but no doubt there are going to be people who really believe this shortly. They did like the average number of people who died from COVID during Trump's time in office. It was like 250 or something like that. And then they said Joe Biden over 4,000 deaths on average because he's been in office for two days and a lot of people died those two days because of the previous policies. And for most of, uh, you know, Trump's time in office, we didn't even have COVID. So you average out the average is misleading. But anyway, they're, they're at that level of silliness. For them, it's like just work backwards from your con- conclusion of Democrat, bad, Republican, good. That's what they're doing. Again, you should be able to sniff this stuff out from a mile away and look for outlets and look for individuals who will tell you the truth across the board. Who will always, I'll tell you when Joe Biden does something and it's his fault, but I'm not going to tell you something is Biden's fault when it's the result and the consequence of the previous administration's policy or idea. So I know that this seems like, duh, that I tell you this stuff, but they don't agree with the duh position because they're Fox News and they're terrible. All right, now we are going to talk about a new policy being implemented by Joe Biden.
So here we go, guys. Joe Biden is reversing a Trump-era policy that caused a lot of controversy, rightly. Biden to reverse transgender military ban as soon as Monday. Now, he, was, he originally promised this was going to be part of his day one agenda. It obviously wasn't part of his day one agenda, but uh, he's doing it within the first week. And yeah, listen, so there's a lot to say about this. First things first, if you believe in equality across the board, then it's a good thing. I think trans people are exactly equal to non-trans people. I think gay people are exactly equal to straight people. I think bisexual people are equal to everybody. So I believe in equality across the board. And I believe also in um, non-discrimination protections for, you know, minority groups with a history of being oppressed. So that protected status is necessary to try to achieve equality. And, you know, that was a whole idea behind the Civil Rights Act. Is like, okay, historically, these people are really uh, oppressed and put upon by a system that's backwards. And so now there's an extra level of like, we need to make sure that it's fair. And we need to make sure that they get the protections they deserve. So I'm in favor of non-discrimination protections as well. Anyway, so yes, policy I agree with for sure. But let's also be crystal clear. We need to end the wars that all of our soldiers are being sent to. Because there is this neoliberalification of identity politics. And that's a problem. Like when you see... For, I mean, the best example was what? When they said uh, the heads of all the intelligence agencies, they're now all women. Girl boss, yes! Plan a coup in Bolivia, yes! Like, that's a problem. When they brag about how, you know, Raytheon improved their gender ratio for executives. And people sincerely are like, oh, what a wonderful thing. Identity politics needs to be intelligent and deeper than that. It needs to not be about putting a, putting a rainbow smiley face on imperialism, to put it bluntly. And again, unfortunately, that's what happens all the time now, is you have people who distract from the policy substance of an issue to just harp away on, isn't it great that we have diverse faces steering the ship now? And it's like, I also want to change the direction of the ship. So it's great. We're all in favor of diversity, but you got to steer the ship in the other direction. I'm not just going to stop and not criticize you because now it's diverse faces steering it in the wrong direction. So anyway, yeah, great. Totally in favor of this policy. But now end the wars because the real way to protect everybody in uniform and the civilians overseas who we happen to kill is to bring the troops home. So don't I don't remember how the old saying goes, but don't miss the forest through the trees. Some people say don't miss the forest for the trees. I don't, I don't know which one it is. I don't really care. You get the point. The point is keep your priorities in place. Understand that this is not the veneer of like a woke military. The problem is still the militarism and the imperialism. And we all believe in equality across the board. But as you allow trans people into the military, also... Bring the military home, because that's super-duper important. Okay.
let me give y'all. Let me give y'all one more, and then we'll call it a day. Okay, let me change the color behind me one more time. This is really devastating. This should concern absolutely everybody because it's worse than you think, and I know you think it's really bad already. Four times as many jobs were lost in 2020 due to COVID as during the financial crisis in 2009. Roughly 255 million full-time jobs, or 8.8% of all work hours around the world, vanished. This is quadruple the impact of the financial crisis over a decade ago. Quadruple, four times as bad. Now, again, to be clear, the numbers here are worldwide, which is important, okay? But respectively, it's a similar case respectively for each individual country. I'm sure some were impacted less because of better policy in response to it, but it's bad, man. It's really, really, really bad. And I don't, this, there needs to be a sense of urgency that responds to what's happening now like it's the Great Depression, because we are effectively in a new depression. I don't care that the stock market on paper is still doing well, because the stock market is not a representation of how your average American is doing, of how working people are doing. The stock market is more of a representation of the wealthy and corporate profits. So that's, to use that as the way you measure the success of an economy is beyond preposterous. It's the dumbest possible way you can measure the success of an economy. So listen, I think, I think the time has come when you look at 60% of the businesses that shut as a result of COVID are now permanently shut, 60%. When you look at the fact that 30% or more of the American people are not going to be able to pay their housing bill, whether it's mortgage or rent. They're not going to be able to pay. There was one report, 28 million Americans are on the brink of homelessness. The only thing protecting them is the temporary protections that were just expanded under, extended under Biden, and Trump was, had them in place as well. Because we have a pandemic, they're saying, well, you can't really evict everybody. I mean, there are loopholes in some states, and people are being evicted, but there could be a tsunami of evictions coming, and that should terrify you. Because as soon as COVID is gone, then it's the economic crisis we face. We're still, we're barely keeping it together with duct tape and bubble gum. But as soon as you get rid of some of these protections at the end of COVID, it's a wrap, son. So that rhymed. So listen, I think the time is here to yet again start having a conversation about reviving FDR's Economic Bill of Rights, his second Bill of Rights that he proposed. I believe it was in 1944. Just so everybody knows, under that, he says you have a right to a job, you have a right to an adequate wage and a decent living, you have a right to a decent home, you have a right to medical care, you have economic protection during sickness, accident, old age, or unemployment, and you have a right to a good education. 
basically the idea is a job guarantee, that job is going to pay well, Medicare for all, free college, and a, a social safety net insurance system that always looks out for you in times of need. That's his, that was his second bill of rights. That was his economic bill of rights. Add a new New Deal. I mean, listen, you do a new New Deal, and that's how you guarantee everybody the right to a job. But if we're not thinking big like this, you should fear what's coming in the future. Because, again, now they're laying it out in crystal clear terms. We know the numbers. People have, have done the math, and they've looked at it. And we're talking about a situation which is four times worse than the subprime mortgage in the Great Recession. And that was a, an incredible crisis. It was a gigantic crisis. You know, I remember how the sky was falling at the time. I remember. And we're talking about something that's four times worse. Really terrifying, man. It's really, really, really bad. And we need strong action. We need the government to step up to the plate. And unfortunately, listen, it's very likely they won't do that. And I think one of the main reasons is they're bought off by special interests. You know, corporations own the politicians. They fund their campaigns and the politicians help them out. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Representing Wall Street, the military-industrial complex, big pharma, for-profit health insurance companies. The list goes on and on. Terrible, but I fear what's coming if we don't do bold, decisive action like this. Okay. All right, y'all. We are done. We are done with the show, with the show. All right, I love you guys. I will talk to everybody soon. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Love y'all. Have a great rest of the day. Peace.